The promise behind this sermon series is the words of Jesus who says in John 14, 12, whoever believes in me, the works that I do, they shall do also, and greater than these. This is an amazing promise. When you think about it, your life matters. Your life matters, not just to God, but to the world. We're people of destiny if we follow Jesus. So think about this a little bit. It seems to me that what the culture tells us these days is that if you want to find out how you can really fulfill your unique promise in life, that the best thing to do is to get to know you, is to get to know yourself. And I suppose there's some truth to that, but, and you know what Pee Wee Herman says about, never mind. <laughs> uh, but... Jesus tells a story, and we're going to look at it today, that suggests that even more important than getting to know yourself is getting to know his Father. So let's pull out our Bible and, and uh, turn to Matthew chapter 25, verses 14, and down to 30. We're going to read this story together. If you're pulling out the black book on the rack in front of you, you'll, pi- you'll find it on page 807. If you're able, let's stand together um, and read this story. Intriguing, messy, somewhat disturbing story. When we're done reading, I'll say this is the word of the Lord so that if you believe it or would like to believe it, you can say thanks be to God. Listen carefully. You're reading God's holy word. For it is as if a man going on a journey summoned his slaves and entrusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. The one who had received the five talents went off at once and traded with them and made five more talents. In the same way, the one who had the two talents made two more talents. But the one who had received the one talent went off and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. Then the one who had received the five talents came forward bringing five more talents, saying, Master, you handed over to me five talents? See, I have made five more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and trustworthy slave. You have been trustworthy in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And the one with the two talents also came forward, saying, Master, you handed over to me two talents. See, I have made two more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and trustworthy slave. You have been trustworthy in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And then the one who had received the one talent also came forward, saying, Master, I knew that you were a harsh man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you did not scatter seed. So I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master replied, you wicked and lazy slave. You knew, did you, that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I did not scatter. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And on my return, I would have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to the one with 10 talents. For to all those who have more will be given and they will have an abundance. But from those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away. 
As for this worthless slave, throw him into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Ouch. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord lasts forever. Please be seated. Well, that's a heck of an ending. And stories like that are always troubling, you know, the ones that end with weeping and gnashing of teeth. They're hard to read. I think in part because they remind many of us of what's so hard to accept about religion. But even more, I think sometimes it's because there's this resonance in that strong judgmental language with some of the dark voices that we harbor in our own lives. You know those voices that say to us, you've screwed it up again. Those voices that say to us, you're never really going to amount to anything, are you? Those voices that say to us, there you go again, or you're not enough. We hear those voices in our hearts and we read a text like this and we go, I bet that's going to be me (laughs) because it's what I'm telling myself all day long. And the last thing I really need is to come to church and have Jesus tell it to me, right? So, you know, this is a a difficult passage. And I got to tell you this week, it really bothered me. I had a hard time writing a sermon. Uh, So strap on your seatbelts. I was drawn to this passage because I... I, I, I want to Jesus. I want to sit at the feet of Jesus and have Him teach me about how it is uh, He's given me gifts and I can use those gifts and He can multiply those gifts and my life will be abundant and fruitful. And there, there is that in this passage. I mean, it's really wonderful to think about that. Like everything you have is actually belongs to Jesus. That, I mean, that is. That, that, I know that about this passage. Like not just your money, but your money and your 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 talents, uh, your abilities. Uh, your preferences, your quirky little sense of humor, you know, your house, your apartment, your car, your friends, social network, all that stuff. It's like it's actually not yours. It's his. It's not for you. It's for him and uh, his kingdom. And that actually is quite liberating. So I, I went to this text excited about it and expectant. But as I studied it, I started to get more and more anxious. I guess the thing that started to happen to me is I was wondering, like, which guy am I in this story? I came face to face with that question. Have you ever wondered, like, which guy you would be in this? There are three guys. Which one are you? And I thought, first of all, I, I want to be the first guy who gets, like, the most, you know? I want to get, be the guy that's got the five talents. And then I realized, well, I'm probably not that. That's kind of like, you know, Oprah Winfrey level, LeBron James, Elon Musk. I don't think I'm living in the stratosphere there. But on the other hand, I'm not number three. I'm not slave three. I know that because I'm trying. I'm taking risks. I'm not burying my gifts, so I'm not, I'm not there. Maybe I'm number two, but, you know, number two, he gets two talents, two talents come back. He says he gets the commendation, well done, good and faithful servant. That could be me. But the voices, the dark voices keep suggesting to me that that's not sort of sewn up, you know, that that's not a foregone conclusion in my life. I mean, is it possible that there's a fourth guy? I mean, that Jesus left out the fourth guy? And the fourth guy tries. He's not burying anything, but he doesn't, he doesn't end up multiplying anything either, right? He gets the talents, and he's like, awesome. Give me, I don't care how many it is. I'll take a half a talent, right? And I'll try really hard, but maybe it's not enough to, you know, kind of kickstart the program. And uh, when the master returns, all I have are unpaid bills and debts. You know, I'm underwater. I've lost my shirt. I go, (laughs) I tried, you know, and and, and that's the one I I worry about uh, uh, for myself is is slave number four. 
and, I, and I'm sort of bothered by this idea that, that, that if the master is supposed to be somehow representative of Jesus, that when Jesus comes back, he gives this kind of like economic appraisal of your life, like he's some kind of heavenly standard and pours, and he says, well done, good job, or like rates the life, you know. That doesn't sort of fit with my theology. I mean, is, is a God a God who's assessing our performance and rewarding us accordingly? That makes me anxious. And I'm realizing as I'm thinking this way that the anxiety I feel around that is the exact same anxiety I feel in, the, in our culture today. I and mean, there's a lot of anxiety in our culture today. And I realize I was bred with this mentality that if I do well, I will be someone of value. The performance mentality. And, and, and you know, it, it starts when we're really young. We got to go to the right school. We got to get the right grades. We got to get into the right programs to get the right internships, the right jobs, to have the right salary, to live in the right neighborhood, drive the right cars. And it's all about performance. And I get that in every fiber of my being. I was, I was actually, I was not raised in a, in a family like many of yours families that go to church every week and believe in Jesus and love. I was raised in a good family, but a family that taught me it's all about your performance. And I think many of us absorb that reality. And so when I read this, I go, I don't really know if I want to believe in a God who is like this master coming and offering the commendation to the winners and, and sending the losers out into outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Is this what God is like? Okay, that's the question I think Jesus is asking here. I think he's asking, do you think this is what God is like? When I, I, I realize that the central axis of this text is not about, it's not based on market skill or investment strategy, the whole text turns on the fulcrum of what these slaves think they know about the master. Did, did, you, did you catch that? When the, when the master comes back, the first two guys are, look what happened to what you gave me. The third guy is, you know what? I know you're a harsh man, and so I buried. It, 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 it's not about what they did because the, the, Jesus in his story blanks. We don't know what they do. All we know is what they believe or don't believe. And we find out what the first two guys believe by the negative example of the third guy who says, I don't believe you're good. I believe you're harsh. I believe you exploit your workers. I believe you take everything good and give everything rotten. And, and Jesus tells the story so beautifully that I realize I've just been impaled by my own performance mentality. I realize Jesus got me. The whole text is, is designed to elicit a response from the reader about what you believe of God. It, it, I thought I was reading the text. Turns out the text was reading me. Do I believe that God is harsh or generous? That's the question that the text raises. It's like a Rorschach test. It's a question of what, what, are you believe, what are you bringing to this master? What do you think you know about him? And the master, Jesus, plays with us a little bit. He says, oh, you know that about me, do you? You know that I'm harsh, do you? Well, if that's the case, um, he sends them out. He speaks to this imaginary tribunal because there are no other characters in the story. He says, send this guy out to where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. What he's basically saying is, you don't know me at all. 
You've got a fake master. You're living in a fake world, a world in which the only people who get the commendation are the people who perform. And, and, and if that's the world you're going to live in, then I consign you to a world where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth because that's what happens when you live with a performance mentality. This is a world of your own creation, but it's not the world of the gospel. It's not the world that Jesus is inviting uh, his hearers into. So the question I want to put before you is, who do you think God is? In terms of this passage, let me put it this way. Who do you think the one is who has given you the gifts that you have in your life? What's your mental image of that person? This is the fulcrum. This is what this text is all about. So many of us are raised to believe that we're only worth anything if we do something that matters. We live with constant anxiety. And if you are tempted, even for a moment, to look at that third slave, who I think is, in some ways, hyper-responsible, super cautious, he's got conservative, and that's, I don't want to screw this up. It wasn't illegitimate to bury, in the first century, people did bury uh, money because that was a safe place to keep it. He, he did a good thing, he's thinking, but the problem isn't what he did, the problem is what he believed. And if you look at him with judgment, then be careful. You might just find yourself, as Nathan the prophet says to David, after Nathan has told David a, an implicating story, and then he looks at David and says, you are the man. If you don't like the image of God that you get from this passage, it might be that you're bringing that image to the passage and you are implicated and you actually are the third guy in this story. That's the caution here. The caution is don't miss the generosity of the one who gave you your gifts and who has great dreams for your destiny. So I just wanted, that's kind of a long setup. Uh, I wanted to challenge you with that as I felt like I was challenged with that this week. And now for the remainder of my time, I just have a few minutes left, I want to address two questions. And I think we'll draw more of the text out for you. And the first question is this, what does Jesus have to say about God if he's not what we fear? And then second is, how do I find my gifts? The real practical question of how do I begin to know who God has made me to be so that I can fulfill the destiny he has for me? Well, let's take these in turn. First, what does Jesus have to say for God if we read this text? And I think to answer the question in brief, it's that God is an abundant giver. God is an abundant giver. And Scott said that so well with open hands. He just fills open hands. And, and I want to look at the talents in three different ways to help you see that. First of all, um, let's think of the talent in literal terms. You know what it was? It, it, they use the word very different than we do. A talent was a denomination of money. It's kind of like saying a $5 bill. But it was the biggest denomination. The biggest. So the point, Jesus is going, man, look, the one who gives you your gifts is an abundantly generous giver. A talent was, before it was a denomination, it was a weight. It was about 50 to 80 pounds of gold or silver. That's how much money. Think about what that'd be worth. And then when it became a denomination, it was the equivalent of 6,000 denarii. You hear about denarii in the Bible. That was a day laborer's wage for the day. So 6,000 of those is probably like 20 years of work. Think about this for a second with me. 20 years of work at their lifespan is more than a career. So at the very beginning of this whole story, 
the master gives at least that much money to each one of the three slaves. It's like getting the gold watch at your retirement party, but being given it on the first day of work. In other words, this is a God who doesn't wait to, to see how your career goes and then gives you the commendation. Economically, the commendation is given right at the beginning, day one. Hey, let me just write you a big check. It's for all the money you're going to make in your whole career, and in today's value, it'd be millions of dollars. Here's millions of dollars. This is how the first century hero would hear It's like, whoa, this is one crazy rich, crazy irresponsible, but crazy generous master. Even the guy who gets one is not getting ripped off. Basically, God's saying to him, as he says to us, at the beginning of our lives, well done. You are my good and trustworthy. By the way, that word trustworthy can equally be translated trusting. I think that suits this context better. I wish our translation said you're a good and trusting servant. Remember when, sidebar, remember when Thomas puts his hand in, in Jesus's in Jesus' side, he's doubting. Uh, uh, he, 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 after saying that, he uses the same word, and it's translated uh, trusting. Um, do not doubt, but be trusting, Jesus says to him. So, well done, he says. He, let me give you the fruit of a lifetime of work right at the beginning. So, you're going to begin with the commendation. You're going to begin with the wealth, and everything after that flows out of the awareness that you have already made it. You're not working to perform. You're performing out of my love. So, it, yeah, it's money. These talents are money. By the way, just it, Jesus does teach a lot about money, and it's worth, in passing, just taking note of that, that this is money he's talking about. He cares about our money because our money oftentimes gets wrapped around our hearts and become a form of slavery. And so what he's teaching us here is that really it isn't ours, it's his. It's not for us and our accumulation. It's for him and our generosity to multiply out and to extend his kingdom. It's kind of interesting to think about even our money extending the kingdom of God, not through giving. By the way, oftentimes you hear sermons on this you probably heard a sermon like this where essentially someone like me says, all your money belongs to God, so you should give it to the church because we'll, we'll handle it better than you can, right? It's like the stewardship sermon. Like, that's wrong um, uh, for two reasons. First of all, you are the church, so there's no other institution that you give your money to. And secondly, you cannot delegate away the responsibility that God has given you uh, with your money or anything else that he's given you. You can't you, you can't say, I'm going to let you take care of that for me. No, Jesus says, put it in your hands. No, you take care of it. Not just the way you give it, but the way that you send it, spend it, save it, invest it, multiply it, leverage it, lose it, in all of those ways. Do it for me. And you won't be enslaved to your wallet. You'll be liberated by my love. So, uh, the, the, these talents represent money, but they represent more than that, and more importantly, thinking of them not literally, but spiritually, they represent grace. I won't dig into this, but for those of you who, who love to study the Bible, you might look closely at verse 29 and note that this is not the first time in Matthew's gospel he has used this phrase. This principle in verse 29 shows up in verse 12 of chapter 13 earlier in the gospel when Jesus is interpreting another story that we call the parable of the soils. And basically his point there is that if you listen to me, if you have ears that are open to me and my good news, then you will, you will know, 
you'll have spiritual insight. And, and that spiritual insight is, is relationship with the Father. That's why Jesus came. No one knows the Father except me. No one knows the Son except the Father. Uh, and, and no one knows the Father except those to whom I disclose him. And so that's what Jesus says in Matthew. So Jesus is eager to disclose the Father's heart to all who have ears to listen. And if you hear, uh, what you hear will be knowledge of God, and nobody can take that away, and it will only continue to multiply and bless your life. So it's clear that these, these talents are spiritual talents, and the, the gift is really grace. Because when you think about the people that hung out, Jesus hung out with, he doesn't hang out typically with the performers. Actually, the performers of his day tended not to like Jesus. The religious performers, the Pharisees, the rich performers, the people who are accumulating money and stuff. Jesus seemed to live in a different economy. And he seemed to break all the rules by which they were living. This idea that you would just accept people, that you would just love people, that you would just embrace people no matter what they did or what they had done or who they were, that they're all loved, beloved children of God. This doesn't make any sense. But Jesus does that. So he's out hanging out with the lepers and the prostitutes and the tax collectors they call him a glutton and a drunkard because those are the people he's hanging out with. Paul in 1 Corinthians 4 says, the world sees us and they say, we're the scum of the earth. Think of that. Um, there's a church called the scum of the earth from that. And like, I love the honesty of that. Like, let's not try to be anything better than that, but we're, we're loved by God, embraced by him in all of our brokenness. And there, that's more beautiful, it seems to me. That's what grace is. These talents are grace. I think the followers of Jesus Christ are, are meant to be go-for-it risk-takers in the way that they live their life, precisely because people um, who know Jesus win before we even begin, and we have nothing to prove, and we have nothing to lose, and that gives us the freedom to live with real beauty. Martin Luther's best friend, Philip Melanchthon, wrote him a letter, and he writes, if you are a preacher of mercy, do not preach an imaginary, but true mercy. If the mercy is true, you must therefore bear the, the true, not an imaginary sin. God does not save those who are only imaginary sinners. Be a sinner and let your sins be strong, but let your trust in Christ be stronger and rejoice in Christ who is the victor over sin, death, and the world. We, we will commit sins while we're here. No sin can separate us from him. Even if we were to kill or commit adultery thousands of times each day, do you think such an exalted lamb paid merely a small price with a meager sacrifice for our sins? He says, pray hard for you're quite a sinner. And I would say live hard because you live in God's grace every day of your life. And then thirdly, there's this aspect of a, 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 a talent that's figurative. Uh, if it's literal, it's money. If it's spiritual, it's grace. If it's figurative, it refers to our abilities. The Oxford English Dictionary tells us that the, by the 15th century, this Greek word had made its way into the English language, no longer referred to money in particular uh, exclusively, but also to our abilities. And Jesus never uses the language of spiritual gifts, but Lori did a great job last week talking to us about spiritual gifts and informing us that the Greek word, the language that's used for spiritual gifts isn't so much about gifts, it's about grace. The Greek word for grace is charis. The, the, Paul, the word that Paul seems to use for what he calls gifts are charismata, experiences of grace. Grace and experiences of grace. They're experiences in your life through which the Holy Spirit has decided to work through you to bless and build up other people. That's what we mean. So let me move to the second question. I mean, if the first is that God in this text is wanting to be known 
through Jesus as an abundant giver, the second question would be, well, how do I find my gifts? How do we do that, practically speaking? Well, I'm going to give you one quick answer today and another answer next week. And the answer today is by serving. By serving. Today, oftentimes, we tell people, well, what are you passionate about? And you look at your child who's six years old and with wide eyes, a little confused, and says, I don't know, cookies? Is that supposed to shape their destiny, their passion about cookies? That's not the best answer, or not the best question. Um, or, or we say, well, what's your dream? Pursue your dream. And at midlife, someone says, well, you know what? I'm happy if I sleep at all. I don't really care about it. I don't have any dreams. I'm glad not to have nightmares. You know? So that's not how you find out what your gifts are. You find out your gifts by actually putting uh, them into practice, by serving others. And we see that in this passage. The master doesn't give any particular instructions to these slaves. He just trusts them. But what they're going to have to do is put those gifts to work. And so we read, they went, the first guy went off at once and traded uh, with these talents, the five. And the second one did the same. But the better way to translate that word traded is put them to work. The, the, the Greek word is work. It's the verb form of the word for work. He went immediately and he put them to work not even knowing what he had or what it could do. He, he went out and he just experimented. He said, well, I'm going I'm to serve and see where value emerges for other people. I think this is very interesting. Uh, let me put it this way. Your gifts surface when the Spirit takes something you have and makes it useful to someone in need. Your gifts will surface when, when the Holy Spirit takes something that you have, anything, and use time, money, an ability, and uses it for someone in need. Now, oftentimes this is really work. Jesus uses that word. Sometimes we have this idea that if we're gifted at something, it's going to be easy. Oh, no, just the opposite. I was reading Umberto Echo, The Name of the Rose, a while ago. My favorite part about that novel is the epilogue in the back, and Umberto Echo says, you know, if anybody who ever does something great tells you it was easy, they're lying. And he tells a story about a French poet writes this famous poem. And he said, oh, yeah, it came to me in a flash of inspiration in a thunderstorm in the woods. After that poet died, Echo says, it was the most work they found the manuscripts. It was the most worked out poem in French literature that he'd edited again and again and again. And we're reminded that Albert Einstein said, genius is 1% inspiration and 99% perspiration. Hard work. And if you're gifted... It's not going to be easy. Actually, I think your gift is the thing that's hard, but it's the thing that you can't escape. It's the thing that you'll keep trying to do because you so care about that thing. It will not release you from its grip. It captivates your imagination. It's actually the, the place of struggle. It might grow out of your pain. It might grow out of your illness. It might grow out of that hurt or anger when you look at the world. Your gift is growing out of that. Like a, a weightlifter who's strongest when she's pushing up the bar at the very same moment that she feels weakest and has absolutely nothing left. And that's why Paul says, Jesus says to Paul, my grace is made perfect in weakness, work, pain, struggle. That's where that grace starts to multiply in your life as you share it, as you put it to work in the lives of other people. Think about how people in the Bible find their gifts. It's their situations of need. How does Moses discover he's got the spiritual gift of prophecy? Well, he's out in the wilderness with nothing but sheep for 40 years, and he starts talking to a bush, and it talks back, right? 
How does John learn that he has this gift of healing? Well, he finds, he comes across somebody who's lame and he dares to say, stand up. How does Dorcas find out she has the gift of charity? Well, she just tries it. How does Paul learn he has the gift of handling poisonous snakes? He's on a beach on adventure with Jesus and he gets bitten. How does Paul learn he has, this is my favorite one, how does Paul learn that he has the gift of exorcism? He gets hacked off at somebody. He just gets angry and he casts out a demon. How does Peter know that he has the gift of discernment? Somebody lies to him. In all of these cases, there are men and women who are serving, and the Holy Spirit works through them. God cannot lead a parked car, so experiment. That's what I'm saying. Get out. Get into the hospital and volunteer. Volunteer with our children's ministry, as Suzanne invited us to do earlier. Cook something. Write some poetry. Lay your hand on someone's chest and pray for healing. Give a foolishly, irresponsibly large amount of money to some organization that's doing something good in the, in the world. And just see, it might not be your thing, but it might be. Now you've learned because you've served. Well, let me just close with uh, some encouragement not to bury your gifts. Stephen Pressfield wrote in The War of Art, if you were meant to cure cancer or write a symphony or crack cold fusion and you don't do it, you only hurt yourself, even destroy yourself. You hurt your children, sorry, you not only hurt yourself, but you hurt others. You hurt your children, you hurt me, you hurt the planet. You shame the angels who watch over you and you spite the Almighty who created you and only you with your unique gifts for the sole purpose of nudging the human race one millimeter farther along its path back to God. Creative work is not a selfish act or a bid for attention on the part of the actor. It's a gift to the world and every being in it. Don't cheat us of your contribution. Give us what you've got. Let's pray. God, thank you for your abundant generosity. I'm just encouraged looking at these faces of these brothers and sisters knowing that they do trust you and that they have been so richly gifted in so many different ways. We ask that you'd pour out your Holy Spirit on us this week and even now as we gather for healing ministry. Be present, will you, Jesus, among us? Give us the eyes of faith to see you walking through these pews right now, touching us in places of hurt and pain. And bring healing, we pray in Jesus' name.